Hey, dear listener, before we get into this episode, I want to invite you to a very exciting training I have coming up. If you are a therapist in need of CEUs and seeking to level up your trauma processing game, my friend and co-conspirator, Dr. Kay Hickson, and I are teaching the very first iteration of our class, Mentalization-Based Narrative Exposure Therapy for Complex Interpersonal Trauma. It's a four-day training coming up on April 8th, 9th, 18th, and 19th of 2024. This is a thorough training where you will be provided with a comprehensive framework for processing your client's complex interpersonal trauma through narrative, and you will leave being able to apply these techniques to your cases right away. It's also going to be really fun. Dr. Hickson and I are a good time, even or especially when we're talking about trauma. I would love to see some of you there. You can find the registration information at thekilnschool.com under the Continuing Education tab. And now please enjoy this episode. One of the things that I really invite clients to do is leave no stone unturned when they are revisiting their trauma, that it's usually those pieces that they are fearful or shame, you know, feeling shame about saying aloud and sorting out that most need to be addressed. If it's left unsaid, then that is what will continue to bother them, even if we are able to resolve many of the other things. There's so many factors operating to do the exposure work is the opportunity to look at all of that and make sense of it. Trauma has become a huge buzzword over the past several years. In fact, I would say that trauma is having a moment. We've gone from a few decades ago thinking of trauma as something that primarily occurred in the context of wartime combat to here in 2022 being able to browse a nearly infinite scroll of videos tagged Trauma Talk on TikTok. Trauma is trendy, and with trends come controversy. The controversy we're going to tackle today is what is the best way to handle clients' traumatic memories? I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That, the podcast where we talk about the things it feels like a therapist can't say. One of the things that is interesting about psychological concepts like trauma emerging as trends in mainstream culture and on social media is seeing some of the long-term controversies and disagreements in our field suddenly plastered all over the front pages of the internet, of course, in a highly oversimplified form. And because trauma is having a moment, there is a glut of people out there who are just chomping at the bit to tell you what the best kind of treatment for your trauma is and what you should be looking for in a trauma therapist. And what I've noticed is this is a prime opportunity for people to sell their own theoretical orientation or opinion on trauma therapy. Not as if it's an opinion or a theoretical viewpoint, but as if it's simply a statement of fact about trauma treatment in general. Case in point, I recently saw an Instagram therapist with many, many thousands of followers share a post of what she called red flags in a trauma therapist. And one of the supposed red flags is a trauma therapist who makes you feel that you have to tell your trauma story. Dude. That's not a red flag. That is a theoretical difference. The theoretical difference I'm talking about being the schism between those trauma therapists who believe that exposure, meaning a direct confrontation with the content of a traumatic memory, is a crucial part of trauma treatment, and those who believe that it's not only not necessary, but that it is dangerous or potentially harmful. Now, as a therapist who does exposure therapy for trauma and uses verbal and written narrative retellings of traumatic memories specifically, did I feel personally insulted by that post calling the work I do a red flag? Yes, I did. Red flag, fuck you, TBH. But beyond that, I also find it quite troubling because... I see that there is a shift more and more towards this viewpoint that exposure is harmful in the context of trauma, when in fact it can be and very often is a powerful and life-changing intervention and the backbone of the work that many of us do in treating trauma. 
And I'm concerned not only about the dishonestly framed pot shots therapists are taking at each other in posts like this, but also that clients may be being dissuaded from accessing kinds of treatment that could make a massive positive difference in their lives. Today I'm talking with Allison Ausved, a clinical psychologist who specializes in prolonged exposure therapy for PTSD and does a lot of supervision and training in that modality. That's not the specific modality that I work in, but Allison and I have the exposure piece in common in our trauma work. So I wanted to talk with her about the importance of trauma exposure and some of the factors that may be contributing to what strikes me and many therapists who use exposure-based modalities as an increasing anti-exposure bias in this field. You're going to hear us discuss some of the fears that therapists bring to our work with clients and how that can inhibit positive clinical risk-taking. The danger of viewing our clients as fragile versus communicating a belief in their strength and competence. Exposure as an antidote to shame. The importance of true informed consent. And some speculation about what is re-traumatization really? If you work with trauma in your practice or you do psychoeducation with clients about trauma and about trauma treatments, you're not going to want to miss this one. Welcome, Allison. Thank you so much for being on. I'm really excited to talk about trauma exposure. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So just to get started, why don't you describe a little bit about the kind of work you do, your background, your clinical work, and, and all of that? Sure, I'd be glad to. And I think one thing uh, that I do need to say before I get into my background is just to acknowledge that um, my opinions and ideas that I share today are mine personally and uh, in no way represent uh, the federal government or any other right. organization that I'm currently or have been previously affiliated with. So I wanted to, totally. to show yes. that <laughs> and then yes. jump right in to write who I am and my background. Um, so I am a clinical psychologist by training and I'm a board certified in behavioral and cognitive uh, psychotherapy uh, or psychology. And I have been working in the Department of Veterans Affairs, serving veterans with PTSD and co-occurring disorders for uh, about 15 years now. So I started my journey in VA as a psychology intern as part of my training in VA Puget Sound and then went on to uh, VA Pacific Islands where I completed a postdoctoral fellowship in uh, trauma and culture and how to... Um, treat folks who've experienced trauma um, cross-culturally or with cultural humility. And that was uh, at the National Center for PTSD's Pacific Islands Division. And then I stayed on staff at VA Pacific Islands. And very early, so my first year on staff, I had the opportunity to train with doctors Edna Foa and Lib Hembry in prolonged exposure therapy. And that experience was, I would say, a coming home experience for me in terms of most effective treatment for PTSD that I'd ever experienced. And also uh, cross-culturally, it made sense with the patients, the diverse and underserved patients that I was working with at VA Pacific Islands. I'm very grateful to have had that opportunity very early in my career. And then from there, was able to uh, become trained as a supervisor, clinical supervisor in prolonged exposure therapy, and then as a trainer in prolonged exposure therapy. And so since about 2008, I've been involved in a national effort on the part of VA to disseminate prolonged exposure therapy throughout our national healthcare system. So we provide training to clinicians of all kinds of um, discipline, mental health disciplines, so psychiatry, psychology, social work, licensed counselors, sometimes um, advanced practice nurses as well. And so any folks who are privileged and working in mental health would have the opportunity to participate in our trainings. And so that's been an extremely rewarding part of my career. And then other parts of my experience uh, with trauma treatment, I guess I should talk a little bit about settings. So I've worked in outpatient, uh, traditional outpatient mental health settings, where you would see a patient maybe once a week, maybe less, depending on their presenting difficulty. And those have been in PTSD specialized settings. So the clinic is designed around treating the difficulty of post-traumatic stress disorder. 
then I've also had the opportunity to work in residential settings. And then most recently, I would describe the level of care or the setting I'm in as an intensive outpatient kind of setting. So currently, I've had sort of the newest endeavor that I've been a part of, which has been really exciting, has been the opportunity to implement mast prolonged exposure therapy. So that is a higher dose or a higher frequency than in the traditional outpatient setting. So four sessions a week of the trauma-focused uh, evidence-based psychotherapy versus the one session a week in the traditional spaced model. What's fun about what we're doing right now is that it's virtual. So we're able to provide that master intensive outpatient course of prolonged exposure therapy over three weeks, but we can provide it to veterans throughout our healthcare system. So in Saipan, Guam, American Samoa, and all throughout the Hawaiian Islands. Um, so that's been, I think, really fun and exciting um, project <laughs> of late. We're about six, I would say six months in. So in terms of like mm -hmm. the design, then the, the pre-implementation, and now we're at implementation and sustainment. I'm sure probably most of the people listening to this have some idea of like what exposure, you know, is in the therapeutic context, but just in case it's a little bit hazy or, you know, unformed for some people, you know, how would you summarize, you know, in the context of trauma treatment, how would you summarize like what, what the exposure component means? I mean, exposure is revisiting in an intentional and therapeutic way um, trauma right? It's not reliving a traumatic experience. It's not asking someone to do something that we believe is actually dangerous and could be harmful to them, but rather it's emotionally processing a traumatic experience. In the case of trauma, we could talk about exposure more broadly, but in the case of trauma, it's the opportunity to emotionally process what someone has been through. And I would say there's two main strategies for doing that kind of exposure work. The first one is memory work or that revisiting of the trauma memory and prolonged exposure. We call it imaginal exposure. So that's where we invite people to recount their traumatic experience in a specific and therapeutic way. Uh, but there are other ways that this can be done in other therapies. It might be done um, in writing or in a different kind of discussion, but it's really that memory work of revisiting what they've been through. And then the other component is more in everyday life. So folks who've experienced trauma and folks who experience anxiety in general may have what feels like true danger, but is a false alarm. So they, they have a fight, flight, or freeze reaction to some stimuli in, in their environment that, that feels dangerous to them, but is not actually dangerous. So it could be a smell, a sound, uh, a certain kind of person or place. And so that in life exposure component is beginning to understand what are all those things that trigger a false alarm. And again, we really want to focus on what's actually safe um, or low risk. Right. So we would never want to ask someone to do something that's actually dangerous. But to understand what are all those triggers, that's a language that's often used right. by, um, in, I would say, in pop culture and by clients themselves yes. is the triggers. Yeah. What are the triggers? Mm -hmm. Understanding what those are and then uh, rank ordering them from smaller or least challenging to things that are very challenging, perhaps they can't imagine doing and then creating a plan for them to approach those safe but uncomfortable everyday reminders. Um, and an anxiety disorder would be things that just make people feel anxious or uncomfortable. And post-traumatic stress disorder would be those reminders of trauma particularly. But there can be other things too. Um, and then we start practicing them so they have the opportunity to, to retrain their mind and their body that those things aren't as dangerous as they thought, or they're not dangerous at all, that they can handle their reactions. And in fact, that their reactions dissipate through practice. So like the way I think of it is like, you know, when we're talking exposure, we're talking like a direct confrontation around um, the things that somebody with PTSD is avoiding. So right. that being the, the traumatic memory component and then also the the triggers you know in day-to-day -day life relationships whatever um as opposed to i think uh you know a more contrasting model not that they're necessarily in opposition but often you know it's kind of placed that way where uh your you know i think it's often termed as like resourcing or like adding you know a more strengths based like reinforcing or building on the person's strengths exposure is a direct confrontation Right. And I would argue that um, 
people don't need special skills. They already have the strength and the skills to do that approach work. And I think um, there may be, of course, certain cases or presentations where um, some skills are needed if someone is at imminent risk, you know, for homicide or suicide, things like that. But in many cases, I think um, there's this sense that um, first people must learn XYZ skills or first they must sustain ABC length of sobriety or abstinence before they can do that direct confrontation or that approach work. And my experience is that um, is just simply not true and that people have those skills and those strengths already. One of the things that is interesting to me as you describe, you know, the contexts that you have worked in with these exposure-based models, um, you know, one be- that you've done not only just regular outpatient, but also, you know, inpatient and intensive outpatient, which of course, if you're doing intensive outpatient or inpatient work, you're working with people who have a higher level of acuity, who are who are at a lower level of functioning day-to-day, hence why they're in those settings anyway. I think that would probably surprise a lot of people that in that context that you're doing, um, you know, trauma exposure work. And I think, you know, really speaks to perhaps some of the myths around like who is suitable for this kind of work and and when is it appropriate and all of that. So, you know, I'd be interested if, if, yeah, you'd speak to that kind of what you may have encountered around people's expectations or biases around like who, who gets to do exposure-based trauma work, who is who it's okay to do it with. I think that's uh, really important what, what you're saying, because I, I tend to think, you know, if not now in a residential setting, right. if not now in an IOP, then when? Like, isn't wouldn't this be the um, safest, and I would put that in quotations, right? Um, but wouldn't this be the safest point in time or place for someone who is higher acuity to do uh, exposure work for their trauma treatment, um, if that's what's needed. Um, so that's generally my thought. Um, but I don't, by saying that, I don't mean to convey that I think doing uh, exposure-based treatments for PTSD in an outpatient setting is dangerous and that it must be done in a higher level of care because I, I don't believe that's true. But I think for that higher acuity, higher complexity presentation, perhaps either um, the provider or the patient or both might feel more confident or comfortable with this kind of work being done in, you know, IOP or residential or inpatient. One of the things that's really wonderful about prolonged exposure therapy, particularly but exposure therapies in general, is that we have literally decades of research showing that these are effective interventions and that patients can tolerate them and that clinicians can learn them and implement them with high fidelity and good outcomes. So that's a known um, that's out there in the, in the literature. And so one, I would say in the beginning, I needed to borrow confidence from the literature. When I was a new exposure therapist, I needed to go to the literature and see those outcomes and remind myself that this is not dangerous work to be doing. When I, when I had those questions as a, as an early exposure therapist for myself. Another thing I'll say is the literature has grown over the years that I've been doing this. So there was a time when you know, to get into studies, we required that people not have co-occurring disorder and all, all kinds of things, right? It was sort of that the pure um, case. And that's not true now at all. We're really pushing the boundaries with the way that we understand things like exposure therapy can work in treatment of PTSD. So there are recent studies looking at providing PTSD treatment via PE with co-occurring said treatment for people who detox and then the next day start PE with relapse prevention embedded in it, right? So they're like, we're real, and we're showing that that works. Um, there's also great literature that's developing on co-occurring treatment of borderline personality disorder and um, PTSD with DBT for the BPD and then PE for the PTSD. And we're showing that that works. And if you think about the patients who we've maybe said are the most high risk or the most fragile, yes. that therapists have really withheld access to Yes. Life-changing, sometimes life-saving intervention, frankly, right, um, yes. from because they're too concerned about the non-suicidal or the suicidal self-interest behaviors that the patient might have. And to me, I just, I think it's a shame, you know, because we, we can, yes. we see that it can work. And I believe it's more harmful to withhold these interventions yes. from those patients yeah. than it is to provide them. But I do think that there's a, a myth out there that it's harmful to provide them, a sort of a fragilization of the client's. 
Yeah, I'm really glad you spoke to that. I mean, a, a common critiques, right, of of any any sort of evidence base within psychotherapy, and I and it's a valid critique of of much of the body of research is that it's the the selection criteria are too narrow, and that and so if you're showing an effective treatment, it, you know, you've you've ruled out so many people that you can't generalize, you know, um, and so I think what you're talking about is really important in terms of if we're going to be able to to make a strong case that any you know particular type of intervention is can be broadly generalized to um, you know a particular group of of people you know in this case PTSD you have to include the messy stuff like it can't just be like oh you're you're fine except you have this single event you know PTSD and everything else is is totally you know totally okay um versus you know what you're talking about i think very much so the um fear of doing any kind of this work with uh substance abuse borderline personality disorder of course being another one because of the the self-harm you know potential another one being psychotic disorders which um is really interesting um i remember so i have a background in you know crisis uh you know acute crisis intervention and so you know one of the things that i noticed when i was doing that you know of course i was only seeing people you know it's like a couple hours trying to get them through you know the next few days of their life so i wasn't you know doing long-term work with them but what i was noticing when we were kind of interfacing with the other clinicians that they were working with or, you know, the agencies, the case management and stuff that was going on for people with psychotic disorders is they weren't getting any kind of, you know, intensive psychotherapy. Almost all of them have a trauma history. You know, we now know there's a a strong connection between, you know, especially early life trauma and the development of psychotic disorders. I did a bunch of um, diving into the research and what I found is there's absolutely zero research saying that it's dangerous for people with psychotic disorders to have trauma treatment. Everything was saying you know, the opposite of like, actually, it's beneficial as long as you're not in the midst of a very active high acuity episode. These clients need trauma treatment. And yet we're, people are too so afraid of destabilizing them that they're not receiving this necessary help for trauma recovery. I completely agree with what you're saying. And a couple of things come to mind. One is that um, the name is escaping me, but there were colleagues at the uh, Charleston VA in South Carolina that were specifically looking at co-occurring psychotic uh, spectrum disorders and post-traumatic stress disorder and providing PE to those patients. And I recall their pilot study work showing that what we would expect, which is that PE was effective, it was acceptable to the clients, and that the therapist could implement it well uh, with people with that, with those co-occurring difficulties. So I completely agree. I think it's that um, high acuity episode that's unmanaged that I would see as a rule out temporarily. We would just need to stabilize that and then move forward. And if we can reduce the PTSD symptoms and they stay reduced, talk about increased quality of life for someone. I mean, that would be huge. Absolutely. And, and again, I see that it's like, these are the folks that, that, and I think therapists are most afraid to do this work because of that, that the myth that exposure is harmful and will lead to destabilization. And if they have conditions or difficulties that are especially frightening to providers, that, that, you know, if they become destabilized, they're even more fearful. And again, to me, really it feels ethical. Like we're withholding an important life improving, potentially life saving treatment from people because of our own fears and biases rather than actual evidence of, of harm or poor outcomes. And, and even in, in the literature on prolonged exposure therapy in general, when people uh, engage in the treatment, and they experience a temporary worsening, which does happen for a subset of people, but not all, their outcomes are just as good. So the trajectory of symptom change, it's either kind of, you know, starts high and goes down, or it starts high and perhaps gets higher or moderate and gets higher, and it still goes down. So even when we see an increase in symptoms, we don't see that fear destabilization. Um, so yeah, I completely agree that that's a, a population that's underserved because of probably therapist biased. The common thread too, between like, if you take those three, um, 
you know, those three clusters that we were just talking about, you take substance abuse, you take borderline personality disorder, you take um, psychotic spectrum. I think anxiety is such a huge component, you know, of each of those, you know, each of those, like, if you want to frame them as disorders or each of those, you know, personal processes, like if somebody's in a psychotic process, you know, you never, I mean, I have spoken to countless people in the midst of a psychotic episode. Anxiety is in so many ways, the core feature, you know, if somebody's paranoid, having paranoid delusions, that's being anxiety driven. You know, if you have somebody with the emotional dysregulation of borderline personality disorder, you see, you know, a very high baseline level of anxiety, you know, so many people with substance abuse, it's a self-medication of anxiety. So if you're taking, I think we've lost sight in many ways of anxiety as a core aspect of PTSD. You know, there's so much out there now about trauma and it's such a buzzword and it's so, you know, I don't know, there's just a lot of sort of fluff around it at, right now, I think at this point in our culture. And I think we've maybe lost sight of like that anxiety is also the driver of PTSD. So if you're taking someone's trauma-driven anxiety and reducing it, it's going to have all these downstream effects on whatever they may be experiencing, whether that, you know, in any particular case happens to be psychosis, substance abuse, you know, emotional dysregulation, whatever. It's going to have, you know, it's not it's not just two separate, you know, spheres. It's it's feeding off of each other. I completely agree. And then that results in improved quality of life, right, for the person and improved functioning, all of it. I completely agree. And one thing, too, that I was thinking about with the psychotic um, difficulties, too, that we were discussing earlier is I think something that's, to me, especially heartbreaking that I've seen is sometimes I have seen folks who have PTSD misdiagnosed with a psychotic disorder that they don't have at all. And they, and even then mm -hmm. the way that they talk when they're engaging in um, medical care and, and mental health care about, for example, an intrusive symptom of PTSD, the way that they talk about it is as a hallucination because that's what it's been mislabeled oh, for them okay. as when they were misdiagnosed. And so, and then you mm -hmm. can see how that could route someone in really the wrong direction, like then, then it's even less likely that they totally. would get access to care, um, the right, the kind of care that they, that they could most benefit from. And it's, and some people have both, like we've been talking about, but I guess I just wanted to shed light on that, how the misclassification, uh, of PTSD as a psychotic experience. And I, I don't know of any data on this, but I mean, we know that, uh, from a DEI perspective, certain people are more likely to be diagnosed with psychotic disorders. And I imagine that this misdiagnosis might mirror that pattern too. Um, and so that I think is something that we need to pay attention to. Right. I was thinking as you were saying that how the kind of context that that I could see that really easily happening in are if somebody's very acutely symptomatic, you know, really struggling and they show up in a crisis setting or they show up at a community mental health agency where they're they're trying to push diagnosis in the first you know, in intake with somebody that you never see again, how easy it could be for someone to, you know, assess incorrectly and then send someone down a completely different path of access you know, to care. And unfortunately, like we in the system we have now, people who are diagnosed with a psychotic disorder are treated as though like, in many cases, they can't improve and that there's nothing to really be done other than manage, manage symptoms, manage, manage their, you know, day to day life. There's not, you know, yeah, that's a whole other, it's a whole other a whole podcast, other hole, but it's such a, <laughs> yeah, it's such an underserved population in yeah. terms of be, being seen as a, a person who is capable of making progress in therapy and, and improving their functioning and all of that. You know, you talked a little bit about when you were first, you know, the fear of doing some of the uh, exposure work when you were first starting and all of that. And then of course, as like a, a trainer and supervisor, I'm sure you encounter um, you know, the trepidation or the, the some of the misconceptions that um, beginning clinicians or clinicians who haven't done exposure work come in with. Um, and so, yeah, I'd love to hear about like what you, what are the things you hear? What are the fears people have that you hear about like when they come into the idea or they encounter the idea of like doing trauma exposure? I mean, I think some of the things, I, I think that our therapists, our beliefs and our attitudes are a big barrier, I would say. Uh, and so 
Sometimes people are more aware of that and sometimes they're less aware of that. But I think that they are ideas like uh, exposures need to be titrated. Uh, and sometimes this is true. So I want to be clear that there are case by case, you know, there are times when we might do those things, but that, that across the board exposure needs to be titrated, that exposure is harmful, that um, patients can't handle it. Only certain kind of patients can handle it. And only if they have certain skills or certain experiences, um, certain types of exposure maybe are more acceptable than others. I mean, I think there's variations on it, but I think at the core, it, it tends to boil down to this notion that exposure is harmful. And in the case of exposure for post-traumatic stress disorder, that it's re-traumatizing to the client to ask them to approach reminders that are objectively safe or to uh, approach the memory through, you know, discussing it or writing it, um, writing it down and rereading it. I would say those are the big ones. And so I think just talking about it and inviting that, I mean, as I shared Earlier, I needed to borrow confidence when I was becoming an exposure therapist myself. I needed to go to the literature. I needed to consult with people who had been doing it longer than myself. And then even though I'm a firm believer in, you know, this is a bias of mine, right? In the scientific evidence, I know that's not the only right answer, the only perspective, but even with that, perspective or bias on my part, I still found with an actual patient, I had trepidation. It felt like a leap of faith when I first started doing exposure therapy. And so I think to share what that was like for me to invite reflection on the part of people who are learning, if they are feeling similarly or what thoughts and feelings they're having about it, and then to invite them to borrow confidence from me, uh, from uh, other colleagues, from the literature, and, and then to do a lot of practice. I think one thing that helps quite a bit is implementation in a team. So the way that our current mm -hmm. model works is we're, we're, you know, we're IOP. We have new clients coming in, starting the program each week. And then we, we tend to, not every week, but many weeks, we tend to have uh, patients who are, or clients who are finishing the program. And so I think it's a wonderful opportunity to borrow confidence, both for the clients and for new providers. Because what happens is in any given week, you're seeing the clients who are getting ready to finish. Their symptoms have been reduced by 50% or more. Uh, they are talking about how their life has changed, how much better they feel. In our program, the prolonged exposure therapy is implemented per protocol in individual sessions, but we also have a check-in and wellness support group. And that's where the patients have a chance or the clients have a chance to meet one another. And that's where they get to borrow confidence from one another because the person who's like at day one, week one, thinking, what have I gotten myself into is hearing from the person who at week three is getting ready to wrap up and has changed their life and they feel much, much better. So it's, it's helpful for the clients, but it's also helpful for the therapist. So as a new therapist coming in, um, it's not the sort of the isolation of individual therapy where they're sort of like, I'm taking this leap. I've never done this yeah. before. I'm concerned it might be harmful and I'm kind of on my own with it. Instead, they get to see the good outcomes all around them with right. the other clients in the clinic. So I feel like that's huge. And even if you don't have a clinic that's set up that way or a program, I think consultation can provide that where we're, we're talking about our cases together. And so folks get to hear about, you know, who is finishing and wrapping up. And we also get to learn from the challenges too of, you know, right. um, what might be, you know, not going as well. But then I think also uh, as a trainer and a supervisor, when I can do either live observation in the room or in the virtual room of the session, that's something that I like to do when I can do recording. So actually a review of the clinical material in some way. So live in the room, recording review, and then in prep for someone going in, uh, doing role play and practice so that they can really understand and uh, apply the technique, so to speak, like to a, you know, a, a case vignette maybe, right? Where we would conceptualize the case. We'd think about what would the in vivo exposure be for this, for this client. They can practice right. um, talking about the rationale for exposure, especially if it feels 
contrary to them. They get to say those words out loud for the first time with me or another colleague versus with a client. And, and then we can work on their confidence and their delivery mm-hmm. and their discussion so that when they're in, in the room in person or virtually with the client, um, they don't sound as if they're questioning that this might be helpful, right? <laughs> like, so totally. I think that, that can help yeah. a lot. So those are some of the strategies that I've utilized with folks. You know, just a couple of things. I think one of the the pieces that you spoke to kind of about the community aspect, you know, both for the clinicians and the the clients and in the context that you're practicing is is really interesting because one of the things that has come up, um, you know, with a lot of the folks that I've talked to um, for this show so far is just how, you know, the impact of the isolation of so many of us, you know, I'm in private practice, you know, obviously many people in private practice and how that can be so difficult on many levels. And I think, you know, in the, the what you're articulating that can be really inhibiting in terms of being willing to take, you know, to some positive risk taking um, in our practice uh, to not have a community of support, you know, either to, um, you know, call on if things are going, you know, differently than you expected and you need to, to switch gears or, you know, figure out, you know, how to get over a hurdle, but also to have people saying like, hey, like I've been doing this, you know, I've been working within this modality or I've been doing this kind of approach and it's, you know, I'm having these great outcomes and, and, you know, sharing what works, you know, I think that the lack of community really does have a significant impact. Um, and then, you know, the piece that you just mentioned too about the confidence in terms of how we approach the clients with this work, I think, you know, that's so huge because, you know, in in some of the, the research, right, on the, the common factors has become so prevalent, identifying like what what are the things that really skew, you know, your case in the direction of, you know, having a positive outcome, one of them being the therapist is very confident in the approach that they're taking. You know, you you introduced that idea of like borrowing confidence. And I think to me, you know, in this, the trauma exposure work that I do, it's huge that I don't come into it feeling afraid for the client. You know, like I feel 100% confident you know, in my client's ability to handle, you know, the content of their traumatic memories. Um, You know, from my perspective, it's already haunting them. That's why they're here, you know? And so like, I don't, I'm not worried about, they're already living with it. It already has happened to them. I don't feel worried about, you know, unless I'm, you know, in a few, you know, specific cases we're dealing, you know, if there's extreme dissociation, whatever. But you know, by and large, I don't have that concern. And I think it's huge for them to see, you know, initially that I feel totally confident in their ability. And then they get to build that confidence over time as they, you know, go through the exposure process. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's our job is to be steady and and to convey our confidence in them and in uh, the intervention and in this case exposure right and that it's not harmful and it's it's so valuable too and i and i also agree with what you're saying that that um they are already haunted right like that's the thing is like this that they're living with it every day they've been through the worst of it the dangerous part was the trauma or the traumas right that was dangerous that's it's never going to change that that was dangerous revisiting the memory in order to live a life with more comfort and ease on the day to day is totally worth it and is not dangerous. It may be uncomfortable and it, you know, it may cause totally. distress and neither of those things are dangerous. And that doesn't mean it isn't awful. So I've definitely seen that come up right. to where it can be experienced as invalidating to suggest uh, that it's not dangerous to talk about this in the sense that somehow People might um, misunderstand uh, what we're trying to say, which is that you you right. can you can handle it um, and you can move forward in your life and you can be in control of your life instead of a traumatic right. memory being in control. Right. But that somehow that would mean that it's not awful 
And of course, that's not at all what I mean that, you know, these are horrific things that people have been through. And I think it's really an honor for us as therapists to be able to bear witness to those things, because uh, oftentimes, you know, we know shame is such a powerful emotion. And oftentimes it's shame, although not always, that keeps people silent in, um, and of the avoidance. Of course, it's a natural part of PTSD and uh, sharing what they've been through. And so maybe the first time that they've said aloud what they've been through. And I think we're lucky to get to hear that and to be there with them and reflect back that there is, you know, there is nothing to be ashamed of with their experience or sharing it. So I think that's very powerful too. I can think of very few. I'm just kind of like thinking back on some of the cases. I I can think of maybe like a couple of cases where shame was not a component. It's certainly not the norm, you know, like I would say typically shame is a, is a huge component, um, you know, of most of the trauma, you know, memories that I can think of that I've, I've worked with clients. And so like, there's, there's almost always some piece that we're encountering, you know, as they're recounting that narrative where, um, you know, maybe they really did do something horrible. Like, I think that's important to like make space for too, is that we often, um, I think it's more comfortable for therapists to think of our clients as only victims, you know, um, at, when in reality people are complex and, you know, I'm sure you've encountered, you know, just in, in, with the military piece, you know, and I do a lot of, um, work with interpersonal trauma. And so you can see a lot of, you know, situations in which people have caused, you know, been been both somebody who was causing harm and somebody who was, you know, the recipient of it. And so like, there's that aspect where maybe we really are confronting something, you know, pretty awful that somebody did, or there's just all the pieces where, you know, somebody feels like they didn't respond well enough, or they violated their own dignity by not standing up for themselves well, enough, you know, whatever the thing is. And so I and, and we know, I mean, we all know that shame the the most important antidote to shame is to be able to share and be seen, you know, in an authentic, non-judgmental, you know, honest space. Um, and so to me, the idea, uh, you know, like if you're missing out, if you're not doing that exposure piece, you're potentially missing out on that incredible healing opportunity to, you know, bring some of the shame pieces to light and, and disarm them a bit. And I do agree that, uh, of course, it is complex and people have experienced trauma um, in many ways, including uh, ways that maybe, I don't know if uh, perpetration is the um, appropriate language, but maybe they've engaged in behaviors um, that they regret and, and feel are wrong and maybe violate their, their values now right. or their morals. And then that's a part of the work. And I think that just like all the other um, boundaries that we were talking about in terms of co-occurring difficulties, one of the things that I've learned in, you know, over a decade of doing exposure work for treatment of PTSD is that if there is room for contextualization and new learning, um, then I think there can be room to do exposure. I think it's very rare that I've seen a referral where it was someone who truly you know, was a psychopath and um, right. there was no new learning yeah. and it was enjoyable right. to revisit the harms that they had done. Right. And it, when that happens, you, you feel it. It's like, oh, this is not PTSD. Right. It's you, you can tell very quickly we're going down the wrong path. For most people, it's like you said, that combination um, of both, you know, having experienced awful things and perhaps engaged in things that they wish they hadn't. And that's part of it. And one of the things that I really invite clients to do is, is leave no stone unturned when they are revisiting the trauma that it's usually those, those pieces that they are fearful or shame, you know, feeling shame about saying aloud and sorting out that most need to be addressed and that that's what I, and this is an empirical, um, but anecdotally, that's what I would predict. If it's left unsaid, then that is what will continue to bother them, even if we are able to uh, resolve many of the other things. And so I, I try to invite as best I can for them to just get it out, say it out, look at it, talk about it, just like you were saying, so that 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 shame can be dismantled and they can make sense of, you know, who was I at the time? 
that needed to do that thing? Why did, why did that happen? Cause it's so easy to take it out of context and just say like, Oh, that's terrible. I'm a monster. But really, of course, like you said, it's complex. There's so many factors operating. Um, and to, to do the exposure work is the opportunity to look at all of that and make sense of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This is an aside, but the, the psychopath comment, it's just, it made me think about when I was working in crisis, there were, I think maybe twice that I felt like I encountered someone where I was like, this is, this is a psychopath and I'm super creeped out. I mean, and the feeling is visceral where you're just like, I, like I have to get away from this person's presence as soon as possible. Um, and it's so different from what I would consider kind of the everyday moral complexity of human beings who are capable of a full spectrum of actions from, you know, ranging from good to bad, everything in between, you know, so. Yeah, you said it so well, that visceral feeling. Yep. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very different from anyone else that you might encounter, yep. I think, for sure. One thing you alluded to is that idea of like, it's going to be re-traumatizing, that idea of re-traumatization, which I think is a bit of, it's a common term. And I'm, I'm curious about like, where do you think that comes from? Or like, what, how has that idea gained prevalence? I see it like, you know, that I think that's the big fear, right? If you, if you do exposure work, you're going to re-traumatize the client. That to me is the core of the fear of like, why people don't want to do it. Um, you know, and perhaps it's also that they don't, they don't, you know, see the benefits as well and don't understand that piece. But, but I'm, yeah, I'm curious, where do you think that idea comes from or what, yeah, what is that about? I can say in a lot of ways, it doesn't feel new, um, right? Like when I think about prolonged exposure therapy trainings in 2008 and 2009 in our, in our VA healthcare system, that was a common question of audience members, um, like gen- genuinely, like a genuine question, like even after showing the evidence, um, showing video tape of actual clients who had given permission, of course, you know, and their progress. I mean, all like all of it, the rationale, there would still be the, but aren't you concerned you're re-traumatizing the patients by doing this? And I, I it's, it's a frustration to me, uh, especially when you sort of go through all of that and, you, and it's like, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I mean, especially in those contexts where we've just illustrated over four days how this is the opposite of re-traumatizing <laughs> and you're still asking me this question, you know? Um, so especially in those um, situations, I just don't, I don't know what to make of that. Um for most people, I think they have less information than someone who just spent four days learning about the topic, right? And so I, I could <laughs> sure. see, I could see for like, you know, it's just like an average person. They might think, right. oh gosh, that's so terrible that someone's been through a trauma. Why would you ask them to talk about it? That's going right. to feel awful. Doesn't time heal all wounds? Won't it just resolve on its own? I mean, I think just some of those myths or sayings that we have about wellness. Um, so I think it takes a little, a little bit of discussion, but I, I do think most people come around though, to this idea that when you have a fear and, um, you face it, it, it becomes less scary. And we talk about that with our, you know, teaching our children. Um, and I don't mean to infantilize our clients with PTSD, but you know, that it's, it's in some ways, it's a very simple that, um, this is something that has taken away your freedom of movement. It's taken away so much from you. And you can see that other people who look like you, other people who are culturally similar, who are in your community mm-hmm. or in your family are able to do these activities with comfort in with ease that you weren't able to do. And so you, there's a part of you that can recognize that there is um, a false alarm in terms of the level of risk. Uh, and so what we need to do is, is start approaching those things, turn the I can't rules into I can rules, so to speak. Um, and revisiting the trauma memory is part of reclaiming your life. And, and so I think people I mean, they generally, I, I think it depends, but I, I think a lot of people do generally get that notion of exposure to confront anxiety in general. And then there is something about the trauma component with PTSD that I think people have a tendency to want to um, fragilize more so. 
So if we were talking about exposure for other anxiety difficulties like generalized anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder, things like that. Or like a phobia. Somebody has the phobia of bridges or whatever. People would understand the idea that like at some point they're going to have to walk across a bridge to be able to live you know, like I live in Portland there, you have to be able to go across a bridge. You know, I remember talking to a psychologist who does exposure therapy for that specific phobia. And he's just like constantly driving people across bridges because you have to. Right. Um, So that's what you have to do. (laughs) Yeah. So I think in that sense, like people are pretty like, yeah, that makes sense. Like you confront your fears and you can do it in a gradual way, kind of put your toe in the water and, you know, you don't toss them in the deep end of the pool. Um, But I think for, for some reason that the adding the trauma component, people just um, see it differently or there's this tendency to, to, to fragilize in a way that I see less so with other types of exposure therapy for other types of difficulties. And I don't, I don't really know what to make of it. Um, although it's just appealing, right? I think in our culture, in the United States broadly, like we, we kind of want a magic bullet, so to speak, or, a, or a pill, right? It'd be great if, um, I, I don't say that I agree with this, but like, I think that's sort of the thinking, like, it'd be great if I could just take a pill and that would make these difficulties go away. And so in, in the sense of like, it seems, um, painful or hard or difficult to ask people to revisit trauma memories. I think that fits with a sort of a bigger n- narrative, which is that, It'd be nice if we could just, you know, medicate or if there was some other way to do this. Uh, And there's just not. Even the medication trials that we do have, you know, those medications really don't reduce all the symptoms of PTSD. It's just there isn't a medicine for it. And I think the the, the best and most efficacious treatments are the, the exposure treatments. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I don't know. I almost feel like people don't even know what they're talking about. Like, uh, in terms <laughs> yes. of like, when they use the term re traumatize, I'm not sure they even know what they mean by it. Right. Because I, you know, as you were talking, I was just thinking, like, I don't even know if I believe re traumatization is a thing. Like, right. I believe you can be traumatized again. Yes perhaps in a similar way or related to a prior trauma, I don't know if I believe you can be quote unquote re-traumatized, you know, like I'm not sure that really means anything. Right. And I'm thinking about, you know, the, the, the context, you know, um, the idea of, uh, you know, people having anecdotal stories of people being, you know, quote unquote re-traumatized by, um, some kind of, you know, narrative, Uh, retelling of their trauma memories. Um, I hear that more from like an older generation of therapists. And I think about um, some of the therapies, you know, or or the way therapy, because it was kind of emerging perhaps into like the 60s, 70s, early 80s, where there were really very few sort of ethical boundaries. You know, if we're coming out of the 60s, people were taking psychedelics like with their clients. You know, there was like a lot of, you know, really widespread sexual misconduct, a lot of like sort of trying stuff out without any, you know, without a lot of due diligence. Um, And I kind of wonder if there was, you know, to me, if there's situations in which people feel they were, you know, supposedly re-traumatized by, you know, an experience at therapy where they were recounting trauma memories, part of me wonders if it like, is that more, was that actually a therapeutic rupture? Was it that there was a therapist who was forcing it on them and they felt like they couldn't say no to this kind of therapy or that, you know, was it really more about the relationship and some kind of like power dynamic that was actually, you know, an interpersonal trauma versus, you know, what we're talking about, which is, you know, certainly, yes, I'm encouraging my clients who I think are appropriate for, you know, this kind of work, I'm encouraging them to do it and communicating that I believe in them to do it. But it's like if a client really doesn't want to do, you know, if they believe that that's not right for them, that's their choice, you know, and so I wonder if like, some of this, it's a bunch of stuff that's being collapsed together that really isn't about the exposure. It's about the therapeutic experience, perhaps just some speculation. I think that's a really important point, right? Is it, is it, um, unethical behavior of some kind that was happening, right? Right. Or, um, boundary violations or ruptures. Um, and that would feel like a betrayal, which could feel traumatic, right? So of course I could see that the point that you're making is important too, that that second piece about 
inviting our, our clients to consider exposure as a treatment option for their PTSD if they're experiencing it, and then, um, you know, respecting their decision, right? So I think that to me, that informed consent piece is so important. And so, of course, I want to lay out, you know, what are the treatment options? Uh, what, what would I advise? And then talk a lot about what it, for me, in the case of prolonged exposure therapy, what it looks like, show brief educational videos so it's not confusing that the, what the components are in terms of the imaginal exposure component and the in vivo exposure component so they know what they're signing up for. And then I think because a lot of the trauma that I work with, not always, of course, but much of it is interpersonal trauma, interpersonal violence, and the background that brought me to psychology training in the first place was working in grassroots sexual assault center, doing really feminist informed work. So for me, there is something about the informed consent that's really important for all clients, but especially for people who've experienced sexual assault. And if the sexual assault or assault are going to be the index trauma, there's something about inviting people to talk about an unwanted sexual experience, knowing that it will be distressing for them. And that therapeutically, the best thing I can do for them is encourage them to continue to keep talking about it and to sit there with the distress. And so that the client may indeed say, can I not talk about this anymore today? And, and what I need to say is, of course, you can not talk about it today. And I'm going to invite you to stick with it because that's what I know is going to help you the most. And for me, that just felt like I want to be really sure that they're all in with this treatment before we get to that moment in a session. So that informed consent up front, having that conversation with, you know, if you change your mind about this treatment, that is 100% your your choice to make. And I need you to tell me I'm changing my mind about this treatment. And until you tell me that, then my job is to try to work with you as your collaborator to get you the most out of this treatment, which means, you know, avoidance is going to come up. We're going to approach it together. I'm going to encourage you to stick with it, almost like a personal trainer metaphor, right? Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. when we, we hire someone to help us work out, it's their job to say, you can do another set or you can do another rep, right? And But I feel that informed consent is so important because otherwise it can feel, and that's how I've made peace with it. For me, it can feel uncomfortable comfortable in the moment to push them to stick with it. And I think some of it may just be that that um, feminist perspective and some of my early work and maybe other therapists wouldn't feel that way, but it felt it feels really important to me. I love that you that you articulated that. Yeah, the informed consent aspect. Like, I think it's such a it's another thing that's such an easy buzzword to say informed consent, but really like how complex it actually is and comprehensive and ongoing, you know, whatever modality you're using that piece of it can make the difference between someone leaving feeling empowered versus leaving feeling like, you know, they've been pushed into something they don't want to do or they don't really know why they're doing it and and not really coming away with the benefit of feeling like, yes, I'm I'm making this choice. You know, I have the power to make the choice to confront my fears and come away leaving, you know, with a sense of mastery. Um, huge. We unfortunately have to wrap up in a minute here because I could talk about this for a million years. But before we do, I'd love to ask. So I ask everyone um, who comes on to share, uh, if you can think of one, what I call a, a therapist can't say that moment. So that could be a time where, you know, you said something, you know, be it colleagues, you know, lay people, clients, anyone um, where you've said something. And then the minute you say it, you know, like, oh, that's something like a therapist isn't supposed to say. So yeah, if you have anything um, that you can think of, I'd love to hear. Thank you for that invitation. And I would say um, the one that came to mind given our our topic today is, as I, I mentioned, my career in the VA started in 2007. That was the start of our effort as a healthcare system to disseminate prolonged exposure therapy and cognitive processing therapy, among other evidence-based psychotherapies. And there was a, a mandate that came down, which is still in place, that veterans with certain experiences that they must have access to certain evidence-based psychotherapies. So not that they have to engage in them or that, that th those are the only treatments for them, but they must have access to them. And prolonged exposure therapy was one of those uh, for veterans with PTSD. And so early on, as this mandate was coming down, I recall being in a staff meeting for mental health, and um, there were providers there, mental health providers there, who were very distressed about this idea that we have 
these treatments available, that we be mandated to have these treatments available. Nobody was forced to go to training. Nobody had to do them. We just had to have a plan to have them available. And I, in the staff meeting, just was was upset that people were so against the idea that we would have access to these treatments in mental health and in VA. And I said, I can't recall exactly what it was, but I essentially said, I think what you're saying is is unethical. Like, I think what you're proposing that we refuse to implement these therapies to not have, you know, access to PE and CPT available to our veterans with PTSD. I think that that's mm-hmm. unethical. And I, and mm-hmm. I was, you know, new early career. And I said this to people who were um, further along and, and also had more power than me in the organization. And, and I said it in an open meeting. So it wasn't, you know, it, it just came right. right out that like, I think this is unethical. Like this is wrong right. what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And it, that, you know, it's just, yeah. So that was definitely one of the yeah. moments. And I realized I needed to make relational repairs with the person afterward because, mm-hmm. of course, to, to, essentially how they received it was that right. I was calling them unethical and I didn't mean that. Right. But yeah, I, I think it is ethical that we have these treatments that we know work available, not to mandate that it be the only option just to provide the access. Thank you so much for being on. This is like such a fruitful conversation for me. I really appreciate being able to have this opportunity to talk with you. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. I I sincerely hope that more people will consider learning and implementing exposure therapies, especially for PTSD with their clients. And I hope that more clients would consider accessing them. Thanks again to Allison for going hard for exposure therapy and for bringing up some of these important themes. On my next deep dive episode, I'm going to be elaborating on the factors I think contribute to anti-exposure bias in trauma therapy, what I think we can and should be doing about it, and addressing that fear of the dreaded re-traumatization. So if you are out there doing trauma work or wanting to do trauma work, be sure to follow the show so you can catch that next episode. And I just want to note Allison's A Therapist Can't Say That Moment brought up some juicy stuff about what happens when therapists call each other unethical, right? There's a lot to unpack about that from a lot of different angles. So just to say we will be getting into it on future episodes. This has been our 10th episode of A Therapist Can't Say That. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your follows, your ratings, reviews, emails. Really appreciate hearing your feedback on the show. And please remember to share the show with your therapist friends who are ready to hear someone talk about the things it feels like a therapist can't say. You can find me, Reva Stout, at intothewoodsportland.com. If this episode brought something up for you that you'd like to share with me, or you want to tell me about your own, a therapist can't say that moment, I'd love to hear from you. So please feel free to shoot me an email or send me a voice note at reva at intothewoodsportland.com. 